Hello and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. I am devastated right now that I am not actually in person with my co-host James. We've been waiting for this week for months. You're back in Seattle, but... I know, but I came back to like an absolute apocalypse. Yeah, things have changed a lot since you left, Charlie. And eerily enough, now that you're back in Seattle, we're recording remotely from our separate apartments, and it's like the internet connection is even worse. I know, it's kind of crazy. It's like it's harder than it was from a thousand miles away, and now we're less than a mile away. I blame you, James, for having the sniffles. Hey, I think it's just uh, the result of a little bit of overexertion yesterday. Nothing nothing to be too alarmed about, but in time of elevated awareness, uh, good to still be cautious. I know. And actually, like after reading the paper that we're going to cover today, I became very glad that, you know, we weren't going to be in contact. Not because I was not because like I'm afraid of getting sick or anything, but more like, OK, I think social distancing is probably a good thing to be doing for our society right now. Yes. Yes. If you guys haven't caught on yet, today's episode is about coronavirus. So there's the spoiler. But, you know, there's a lot of different (laughs) research going out. So I think this is a timely and really interesting topic. You know, with all the news coverage that's been out there, there's a lot of unknowns. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And like the amount of research that is coming out on this is just, it's like unprecedented. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just like papers and papers and pa- like people are getting journal papers turned around in two weeks time, you know, which is normally like a many months, if not a year or a year's process, you know? Yeah. And it kind of brings up that concern of like, are all of these papers getting read? Presumably they all have valuable information. Like it could be. Your- yeah. Yeah. They could hire us full time to just read these papers. Full time paper boys. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Maybe when, you know, the government stimulus package comes out, that'll be one of the line items. Yes. One can hope. Tell us a little bit uh, about this paper. How'd you hear about it? <laughs> well, actually, I heard about it from you, James. A longtime fan of Paperboys, James Rosenthal. Yep. Been a fan. Such a fan. Started. He co-hosts the show. Weaseled my way in. Uh, so thank you for sending me that. And what the, pa- what the paper is, is... Uh, It's a report produced by the Imperial College COVID-19 response team, and they put this out on just March 16th, so just three days ago, and this one, I think, has been one of the most, uh, like, visible pieces of science that's come out on the coronavirus because it specifically is relating to, uh, like, interventions that can be done and how those can inform policy moving forward over the next, like, two years or so. Interesting. And if you had to rate the paper on a scale of optimistic to pessimistic or perhaps upper to downer, where would it fall? Oh, boy. Pretty big downer. It okay. was like pretty um, alarming and depressing reading this paper. Just like the 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 outlook is very gloomy, you know, not necessarily for you and me like in our health because we're young but um just in terms of the total number of deaths and you know maybe more importantly the the amount of time that it's going to take for this this to basically settle down Mm -hmm. yeah i mean we can just dive in i uh i had only skimmed through it 
I thought the graphs were really interesting, and we can talk about that some more. But I am very curious to hear your take after having actually gone through and read it. Um, and of course, like in all of our episodes, we'll post links to the paper so you can read it yourself. It's open on available online. Yeah, we'll have this up on our website, paperboyspodcast.com. So, I mean, just diving in, the title of this paper is called Impact of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions, NPIs, to Reduce COVID-19 Mortality and Healthcare Demand. Uh, the first author is Neil M. Ferguson, but there's a very long author list. Like it's a, you know, maybe a couple dozen people on this. Um, and like I said, this is all the people on the Imperial College COVID-19 response team. And I think their work is really like, um, it says it's the WHO Collaborating Center for Infectious Disease Modeling. So I think that they do this work for the World Health Organization or in collaboration with. Okay. And yeah, I actually, I heard about this initially from uh, a professor at the University of Arizona had posted something about it on Instagram. One of the plots that's been going around a lot is that idea of it shows the two Gaussian curves and one happens if you don't socially isolate yourself and it peaks up quickly and then decays quickly, but it's a very tall, narrow peak. And the other is if you self-isolate, you have a sort of more spread out, smaller peak. And, I, you know, I think that's been a uh, yeah. great rallying cry for self-quarantining. And then I saw these graphs and I was like, maybe we need to extend out the flatten the curve graph for a little bit longer to see what happens in the future. Just got me thinking. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, this 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 paper, I think, really kind of will affect the way that you're thinking ahead on this. And I think that it's even starting to affect the way governments are reacting. Really? Um, like, I think that just yesterday, sorry, I think just on Tuesday, so the day after this report came out, uh, the UK like changed their approach and it fell basically more in line with what this report was suggesting. Uh, some people think that Trump's press conference also uh, on Tuesday was like kind of spurred by this by this report because some of the stuff that he said in there was talking about the length of time and, the, and those timelines lined up with um, what was in this report. Oh, so. interesting. Okay. I didn't realize the implication. Yeah. And this report specifically focuses on Great Britain and the U.S. in its modeling. Uh, and I, I guess I haven't really said what it does. Um, what it's what it's doing is like it. this team has basically just a computer model of the spread of infectious disease and mortality and like, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of variables in there that let them model uh, different amounts of social contact between people, how severe cases are going to be, how many are going to require hospitalization and for how long. Um, it's pretty detailed and it's very, uh, it's very interesting just to see that this even exists. And it's pretty cool because there's probably people who have been doing this research for a long time you know, basically waiting for the day when this was going to be very necessary mm -hmm. or rather doing work in preparation for this day. You yeah. Know? They've been waiting a hundred years since the great flu of 1918. I know. Well, that's, that's actually what they say is that this, uh, coronavirus is now like, it is the most, uh, dire, it is the most dire infectious disease that we've faced since the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918, which killed 100 million, 100 million people worldwide. Wow. Which is 
even crazier to think about when you realize that the world population then was like, I don't know, less than 2 billion. Oh, yeah. And when you consider the fact that that was happening when World War I happened and that virus killed more people than World War I and World War II combined. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Infectious disease, people. It's anyway. So it's like reminding me of the mosquitoes yeah. episode. Most dangerous animal, mosquito. Greatly, the number oh, yeah. of deaths from mosquitoes, mosquitoes are the deadliest. Way outnumbers anything else, even snakes. Yeah, but I digress. Uh, so anyway, I'm raising I'm raising the alarm bells maybe a little bit too much at the start, but just to give a sense of like, th- this is a big deal, which I think everyone knows by now. So in in this report they say that there's basically two strategies that you can take to uh, stop or to limit the effects of this virus. Mm -hmm. One is uh, they just call blanket suppression, which essentially just means you're going to reduce the number of new cases that arise like from each infected person uh, to a number that's less than one. So like if you think of it, you know, when we talk about like, oh, a video went viral Mm -hmm. or something. You can actually like model that in a way where it's like uh, the reproduction rate of a thing, which is that if I see, let's say I see a video, it will go viral if I'm going to then send it to at least like two people, you know, or rather if on average I will send it to more than one person. So you can just see like how that would cause an exponential growth, like an ex- like a runaway, you know, growth of this thing. So if each person who's infected, there's a reason that they call it going viral. Uh, yeah, exactly. So if each person who's infected uh, infects an average of one or more people, then uh, this thing is, un- is, you know, it's uncontained. So the idea behind suppression is reduce the amount of infections that each person, like, transmits. Okay. And this is something that has to, will have to be done until, until there's a vaccine. So if you're not transmitting between people, then you're not building up herd immunity, in which case you need a vaccine. So if you've suppressed all this contact, if you suddenly let go of that suppression, then the the outbreak will still happen. Interesting. So it's like there is some benefit to spreading the virus because what doing so yeah. people get immune and then they're fine to operate normally in public. Yes. So that is like a you know part of this decision making process. So the other strategy, I mentioned there's two. Uh, the other strategy is just they call it mitigation. So instead of interrupting transmission between people, uh, you're actually instead just going to try and reduce the impact that the virus has on society. So like, for example, I think in 2009, when there was the swine flu outbreak, uh, mm-hmm. they they did mitigation where they focused on getting early vaccines to people who were most affected by the disease. And then they let everyone else just get the virus so okay so that way you know people build up herd immunity without a vaccine but the people who you really don't want to get the virus because they're the most susceptible uh those are the people who you focus your treatment on so that's mitigation to real quick in the case of swine flu and just i guess generally what did you get any indication for how long it actually takes to make a vaccine for these um the number that they keep throwing around in this paper is like 12 to 18 months 12 to 18 months okay i've heard that That, thrown around yeah that it won't be it won't 
Yeah. Okay. Just to give us some timeline, because basically then, if I understood correctly, it's some balance of like, until you have mitigation strategies, you probably only have suppression that you can use as a tactic, right? Um, yeah, pretty much. And the goal, you know, as this report will lay out, the goal is basically just try suppression as long as we can, because the real problem is not just um, people getting sick. It's more that we don't like physically have the capacity in our hospitals to treat all the people who are going to have critical cases of this. Okay. Uh, but I'll, I'll get into that in a minute because that's where things get kind of dire. Okay. So I mentioned, so the title is, the title says non-pharmaceutical interventions. And uh, that's kind of a fancy word with an acronym NPI that basically is now something we are all very familiar with. It's really things like uh, shutting down schools and social distancing and uh, quarantining yourself at home. So like these are, these are different measures that can be taken that are uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. And of course, we're all familiar with these things now because we're because we're living them. I mean, I've been sitting in my house for the last probably seventy two hours. I haven't left. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, a week ago the situation was different, and uh, it's slowly. I mean, I think worldwide we're all kind of in this together, which is sort of in an interesting yeah. case. You know, it, in the past with SARS and MERS and swine flu, it's like. It seemed like it was just sort of isolated pockets, but to have this on a global scale where everybody is in it together is, uh, I guess it's both scary and reassuring. You know, we all have each other's backs from home, at least for now, at least for now. It's good to have everybody in this together working to try to make it better, but we'll see. Anyways, I interrupted yeah. you. No, it's fine. So in the report, uh, they they test out five different NPI scenarios so the non-pharmaceutical intervention okay uh, so one is case isolation in the home where if you have symptoms you stay at home for seven days the voluntary home quarantine means that if someone in your house has symptoms then everyone in the house stays quarantined for uh, 14 days and then there's social distancing of people over 70 years of age and then there's another one that's social distancing of the entire population. So those are just sort of two, like one is a subset of the other. And then uh, finally, we have closure of schools and universities. So these are... So most of these are kind of already being implemented here in the US at least, or here in Seattle, I should say. Okay. So these are all like suppression strategies of increasing severity, basically. Um, it's, kind yes, of. It sort of sounds that way when they're listed in that order. But then when you actually go into the results, um, it doesn't really shake out that way. I, okay. Now that I'm reading it, or now that I've like read the rest of it, I, think, I don't think these were laid out in any particular order. And it turns out that like certain combinations of these strategies are really what's effective, as opposed to like, this one is better than this one, because these aren't like mutually exclusive, you know? Okay. Yep. You, oh, okay. Yeah, you could implement public school closures and closure of universities but then also implement social distancing and case isolation like you can exactly. do all, all five of them basically yeah exactly so what they first do is they show the results of this model running without having any of these npis implemented 
and this was the part that kind of like made me sweat a little bit. Um, they show this chart of deaths per day per 100,000 population. And you can see that figure here in the uh, Google Doc, James. Mm -hmm. And um, it's in the in Great Britain, it spikes around like mid-May, around, you know, 20 deaths per day. And in the U.S., it spikes around uh, like early June with, you know, like 15 or 20 deaths per day. But then, but, you know, those those are like curves that are that's just the peak. But I mean, you can imagine this looks like a big bell curve. And when you add up all those total deaths um, in Great Britain, there would be a total of 510,000 deaths. And in the U.S., 2,200,000. That's with no mitigation strategies. Wow. 2,200,000? Yeah, and that would all occur between now and about August of this year. Jeez. How many, um, do you know how many people would, like, be affected? Like, how much of the U.S. population would it hit? Uh, it says... If we just let it run. It says 81%, yeah, 81% of the Great Britain and U.S. populations would be infected over the course of the ep epidemic. Dang, that's crazy. I was... So 81% infected... You know, 2.2 million is somewhere less than 1% deaths. So, okay. I mean, so that's like even, I mean, I guess that's like a slightly conservative estimate for the actual mortality rate of it as well, right? I think the common flu is like 0.1%. And from, you know, the mass of news that I've heard, it's like, this is slightly more deadly than the normal flu. Yeah. I think, I think like, well... Yeah, I think it is conservative because what I've been reading is that the mortality rate in confirmed cases is like 2.3% or something like that. But, you know, that's when you divide by confirmed cases. There's way more cases out there that are not confirmed. So in reality, that number is probably lower. Okay, okay. Um, but so, so interestingly, actually, they have a table in this paper uh, that actually breaks the mortality rate down by like age group, which is something that I've been kind of wondering about and it really hits senior citizens hard like harder than i even realized really so you step up like you know age group zero to nine uh the fatality rate is 0.002 percent uh and then they you know they go through each kind of decade of age for example you know our age group 20 to 29.03 percent fatality ratio uh our parents 60 to 69, it, you know, you're getting up to 2.2% fatality ratio in that age group. 80 plus 9.3% fatality ratio. That's crazy. When these data points were first coming out, I guess, I mean, it seems like it was a long time ago, but it's probably just two weeks ago. Uh, I remember someone being like, well, you know, 2% doesn't sound that much, but it's like, if someone's like you have a one in 50 chance of like dying if you went and took your car or something, you would never do it. You'd be like, those odds are yeah. horrible. No, I mean, that's insane. Like 2% is so high. Yeah. Uh, like if you were to hop on an airplane and they're like, there's a one in 50 chance that we will crash. Like you would just get off immediately and never fly again. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no way. The, so along with this table, they talk about like that reproduction rate that I was mentioning before, you know, like you want it to be less than one to stop the spread. Mm -hmm. They estimate, um, there's been papers that have estimated based on the rise of it in China that the reproduction rate is 2.4. So it's wow. like, I mean, it's like 
this thing is just like blowing up. And I, I think I heard that like for the normal seasonal flu that goes around, it's like 1.1 or something like that. Right. Did they mention that at all? Yeah. Or compare like just it? barely over one. Uh, I didn't see that, that in this report, me. but I, that wouldn't surprise me. Okay. Yeah. And like, you know, in a, in a bad flu season, it's like, I know all my friends get sick and that's with a vaccine and everything. Granted, yeah. you know, the vaccine I mean, isn't always at this perfect, point. But... I'm, I'm expecting to get at this point. I'm expecting to get coronavirus, mm-hmm. you know, like it's kind of inevitable. Oof. Okay. Well, let's keep diving in. Let's keep diving in. So you talked about so far, they did a model where they looked at the great or at Great Britain and the United States and they said, okay, these are this is sort of what we predict would happen if we just let this thing run rampant and don't take any suppression or mitigation efforts. So my guess is that afterwards they started to model what would happen if they mitigated or uh, sorry, it took uh, different suppression steps. Yeah. So they basically just stepped through like a bunch of different combinations of those NPIs that we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So that chart that you've probably seen going around is this one here where they're showing, you know, versus time, what is the number of critical care beds that are going to be occupied per 100,000 of the population? And the, again, you have this, the black curve is this uh, case where you don't do anything. And, you know, it very quickly climbs in mid-April, eventually reaches a peak in mid-May of around like 280 beds per 100,000 that are going to be occupied and that's like on a given day and then you see you see this like red line that's way down at the bottom of this graph yeah it almost looks like it's like it's at the bottom it's like like I thought that that was like the the origin I thought that was like showing where zero was that's actually it's around it looks like it's around like eight or something that's the number representing our actual capacity whoa this looks a lot different than the other curve so i mean i'm not i'm not saying that to be alarmist and you know we should definitely talk about like other perspectives on this but uh this curve is this curve is like not quite as rosy as the the shift the curve plot that was going around earlier so i mean the good news though is that like you can see on this same plot like as you as you start to add some of these strategies, these NPI strategies in, you can actually reduce the peak of that curve. And you can also spread it out a little bit so that so that it gets sort of delayed and that like the rise is slower and the fall off is slower. Okay. But even even in the best case, where you combine case isolation, home quarantine, and social distancing of people over 70, uh, that curve still peaks at like almost a hundred critical care beds per day per hundred thousand people so we're still i mean we're still exceeding in the best case exceeding our hospital capacity by like tenfold wow with all of these measures that we're taking and it looks like from this plot it's like if we start taking measures now until like midsummer right yeah, so it, yeah, that that blue region that's highlighted starts at the beginning of April and goes until the end of uh or the beginning of July it looks like. And 
I mean, it's just really alarming because like, I assume that they're starting with the initial conditions of where the virus is right now, which, you know, if you look where we are here in late March, it looks like we're at zero, basically. We're like effectively at zero on this plot, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're averaged out across the country. I mean, we've been here in Seattle where like things are actually getting bad. And so it, it feels bad here. In the rest of the country, that's not really the case. But when you see this like giant spike up to, you know, 280 beds per day, like that is, uh, I mean, that, that just means it's, this is going to be so widespread across the country. It's insane. Like it's, yeah, it's scary. It's one of these things with like, uh, I've been trying to come to terms with this lately, but it seems like the human mind intuitively is not built to, sorry, let me rephrase that. The human mind is not built to intuitively understand exponential growth. Like it's not the way that our general day-to-day life operates. Like maybe it's the same reason why convincing people that saving a little bit and, you know, investing every day and the effects of compounding interest for like, you know, saving is so important, but it's like, it's hard to grasp until you like run the numbers. And even then it's like, you need a spreadsheet to convince yourself that it's real. But you look at these graphs and you're like, it just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading. And before you know it, it just blows out of control. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, there's, I think there's a quote from uh, Albert Einstein. He says, compounding interest is the most powerful force in the world. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. It, you know, it. I mean, I think that like nicely kind of sums up, <laughs> you know, if the person who understands things probably better than the rest of us do thinks that compounding interest is the most powerful force, then I think there's some truth to what you're saying there. <laughs> yeah, this is like compounding viral interest. So there's some more interesting things that they find from like combining these different strategies. Okay. So, oh, okay. And so uh, the previous plot we were looking at was just the individual uh, suppression methods compared. So like do nothing, uh, only do case isolation only close schools and universities but not in combination uh no this was in combination so like the best case there was like case isolation home quarantine and social distancing of people over 70 but that was just looking at the critical bed capacity so this is looking at like the impact on you know our hospitals but there's other plots okay showing i guess like different combinations of strategies and how we how uh yeah there's just other plots showing different combinations different combinations okay um, so, yeah, so if you look at, like, I thought this was really interesting. If you uh, close schools and you do case isolation and social distancing of everybody, then you can actually, like, really seriously suppress this virus. So you look at, in this window, in this window from April to September, you can actually keep that critical bed number, like, well below the eight maximum, all the way for the, all that time. Yeah. But then as soon as you stop doing those measures, because everyone has been socially distanced and, you know, schools have been closed and everything, no one has actually caught the virus. So as soon as you stop those measures, oh, if you don't have a vaccine, everyone catches those viruses. So actually, it's interesting. They, they, show, they show that uh, during that window. And then there's another combination of case isolation, household quarantine, and general social distancing. And what you see is that um, in that case it doesn't suppress the virus as well. Like you actually kind of go above eight beds per day 
for some of that time. Like it's not as good as when you close the universities and everything. But then afterwards, once you stop those measures, the the like the secondary epidemic is not as bad because more people have gotten the virus during that time. So, so it's like it's like you said, like you actually kind of want to like let a little bit of air out of the balloon. Like you want some people getting sick all all the way throughout. You just don't want it to blow up so fast that we overwhelm the healthcare system. I mean, basically what this is saying is like leave schools open so that young populations transmit it between themselves. And when they get it, then basically their whole house has to self-quarantine until it's gone. And so that you're almost like exposing it in small batches to people. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't think that's what they're no, suggesting no, no. to no, do. No, no, no. But, that's um, in my own it, words. But like, that's not what they're saying to do. But like practically, yeah. that's kind of what happens. Yeah, but and it's not even like, oh, let it spread among certain populations and not others, because in reality, like that's just very difficult to do. Like people interact all the time. Yeah. So yeah, uh, what they what they That's do show point. in their model, it, they actually kind of build in this thing where they say, "All right, it, it's probably not realistic to expect that we're all going to do social distancing for another eighteen months. You know, we're not all going to sit in our house for eighteen months. Mm-hmm. So what we could do is set trigger points where once we've exceeded this number of you know uh, critical conditions or critical cases of the virus in a given area, then you reinstate the policies." And then once it comes back down to a level that's acceptable, you can relax the policies. And they have some cool plots that actually show this kind of periodic behavior. Like if you set this trigger point where you say, all right, once there are 50 cases out of 100,000 people uh, that are, you know, hospitalization worthy, let's put these, these things into effect. And you, and you see like, you know, they institute social distancing and all that. And then there's a huge spike in number of cases, but then it quickly drops off throughout the time that those policies are in effect. So then once it drops back down below like 50, then they can uh, relax those policies. And then you see that it starts to climb back up again, hits 50. But the second time around, the, the spike is much lower. And then each subsequent time that they reinstate after that, the spike stays low. So they can kind of like, huh. you know, this first one that we have now is is really bad. But if they kind of keep going through this cycle of relaxing the policies and then reinstating the policies, they could actually kind of do that, let the air out of the balloon slowly kind of strategy. That's really cool. This, uh, it's sort of as a technique to get us to the point where we have a vaccine where it's like, yes, we have to make some social sacrifices by self-quarantining, but we have some reprieve in between, so it's not just 18 months solid. And while we still get out, we are still keeping ourselves below uh, the critical care capacity of our hospitals, right? Yes. One thing, looking at this plot, uh, you know, maybe it's the electrical engineer in me. I couldn't help but thinking it looks a lot like the plot of an RC circuit. When you turn on the voltage and it charges up and then you turn it off and it starts to decay down and it's not quite, you know, very different systems, but like it looks almost like a voltage plot. Yeah. I mean, in reality, like some of these effects are just the nature of the fact that like, you know, I I haven't peeped under the hood of their models, but I imagine this is just kind of a system of a bunch of, you know, differential, like coupled differential equations Yeah, that is being solved. So in reality, like, yes, like there's going to be some 
oscillatory behavior, but it turns out that that actually, you know, is a feature of nature as well. Like predator prey systems. I'm sure we've all heard of that. Like that is an oscillatory thing occurring in nature that is like a very much a biological and like uh, ecological process. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's interesting to see the like si- sort of signal statistics overlap between all of this and epidemiology and policy too. You know, I think from just skimming through the paper, they talk about that too. Like none of this happens without firm government policy. I should say like unified government policy uh, for whatever country it's going in. Yeah. This is also making me realize that like epidemiology is like one of the most important fields that we could study. It's making me feel like bad for being an aerospace engineer. (laughs) Well, it's like, yeah, when for when these moments come around, who do you turn to? Yeah. Did you get any other information from the paper about like the types of models and equations that they used? Uh, It doesn't really have equations. It does it does have uh, some interesting things about like assumptions that went into the model. And I really just thought this was interesting because it's all based on like very new data, you know, it's like based on data that's being reported from just the past month. Um, So, you know, they talk about things like they are using an incubation period of 5.1 days. Uh, Again, that reproduction rate is 2.4. Something I thought was really interesting was that it, like in a way of how like how they kind of initiate the model and weight like assumptions that they kind of put into like how disease could spread they said that people returning from china on repatriation flights like when they were being um you know evacuated uh about 50 percent of people who were infected coming off of those planes were not actually identified as having coronavirus really like those initial two-week quarantines so like that even they though they the people like or just like the initial tests when they got back. So they say that that those cases that were not correctly identified uh, include asymptomatic infections, mild disease, and a level of under-ascertainment. So they say, we therefore assume that two-thirds of cases are sufficiently symptomatic to self-isolate. So that means like one-third of cases, you don't have symptoms, and therefore you don't self-isolate or don't get tested. And so like there's a lot of cases that are going unnoticed, which is what's allowing this to spread. Okay. Wow. That's a surprising statistic. I didn't realize that. I mean, and I guess it just further emphasizes that, like, one of the reasons this is spreading so much is, like, the world hasn't seen it before. No one, to our knowledge, yeah, has... Like, didn't even know what to look for, you know? Yeah. It, that's one of the things that's been really interesting, I think. Like, looking at this from a scientific perspective is you talk about viruses and like all the different symptoms and people try to look back at like SARS and MERS and like other coronaviruses. But it's like, there's so much that's unpredictable about them. These uh, these viruses, it's like the incubation time can vary widely. It could be contagious without showing symptoms. It could be contagious only when you have harsh symptoms. Like, all of those are variables that could be tweaked and that you have to figure out from statistics. Yeah. And also like it's making me just kind of realize what a stupid like kid that I was like SARS. I just can remember thinking like, this is not a big deal, you know, like at the time, I mean, I was young and had no clue. And 
Right. And they contained it. And I think that probably a lot of people in the Western world just thought like, whatever, like SARS, what's, you know, what's, what's the big deal? Like, okay, some, a couple people died. Yeah. But now, like now I have such a greater appreciation for like why it is such a big deal when these viruses come out of nowhere and why they take such extreme measures to contain them immediately because like history tells you what happens when these things are bad and now Mm -hmm. the present is showing us what happens when these things get bad and it's only going to get worse you realize Uh, you know so i hope no one like clips me out of context saying oh sars isn't a big deal because that was in the context of you know my stupid kid brain yeah (laughs) no i mean you i think you and i are both starting to appreciate like the fact that we look back on those memories and we're like oh sars wasn't a big deal that took a ton of work from a lot of people to make sure that that was our feeling. Like that was our goal. They're they're like, we want people to look back and be like, this wasn't a big deal because we handled it. But right, the, yeah, the fact that we the that we like didn't care is a sign of great success. Yes, yeah, man. Which is kind of what makes me feel like stupid and bad about thinking that is like, it's just such an underappreciation for like the people who actually have devoted their lives to stopping things like this and who are now currently devoting their lives to mitigating and, and reducing the effects of things like this. Mm-hmm. Man. Well, were there any other interesting parts of the paper that you haven't had to cover or you haven't gotten to cover yet? Uh, I guess I didn't really cover like their recommendation or like their kind of conclusions. Um, they, they say that uh, if you combine like home isolation, home quarantine uh, social distancing of elderly, then you can actually maybe reduce the peak healthcare demand by about two thirds and reduce the total number of deaths by about half. So when they look at that case of like, you know, kind of letting the air out of the balloon, mm-hmm. I think over, over the next like two years, I think that it results in, you know, a total number of deaths around like 1 million. Wow. That's... So, hang on, actually, wait, I've got it better. That's still a lot. Yeah, they say that really the biggest problem is that even with mitigation, so so they say our most significant conclusion is that even with mitigation, it's unlikely to be feasible uh, to contain this without like emergency surge capacity limits being exceeded. So because the number of cases is going to so far exceed our capacity to treat them in like emer- in like the ICU of hospitals... Mm-hmm. Even if we could treat all the patients, it's still going to result in in about 1.1 to 1.2 million deaths in the U.S. Okay. Wow. I mean... So that's probably the most alarming thing to take away from this. Okay. And, you know, it's a model. I think it's important to say, like, you know, hopefully it isn't this bad. But I think in any situation like this, it's like, you sort of have to operate on a worst case scenario assumption so that you take appropriate measures because if you if you don't it very well could, yes, it very well could get to this point absolutely but also like nothing in this paper at no point in this paper are they like we assume this which is a worst case assumption like they're making all these assumptions of like that that are very you know moderate if not conservative so i mean the numbers that come out of this could you know I think what isn't really taken into account is like, you know, the way that social behaviors are going to change this and the way that, you know, as 
you know, it gets warmer towards the summer. Maybe that'll change things. Like I've, I've been hearing that maybe that, you know, climate has an effect. Like there's lots of dynamics at play here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically their, their ultimate conclusion is that suppressing the epidemic, like keeping people apart from each other and stopping the transmission of the disease between people is really the only way that we can save lives. Like that's the only way that we can, you know, we have to do that until we have vaccines basically. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, at least be prepared to for a very long period of time. I I like their strategy of having intervals. That sounds much more appealing from like a public policy, social, you know, like from a realistic policy perspective, giving people the ability to yeah, get out. Non-civilizational collapse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Man, well, thanks for covering this one. I, I learned a lot. Hopefully you listening yeah, as well uh, learned something too. Definitely a lot to chew on. Yeah. And just got to keep hoping that this doesn't come. I mean, I'm like laughing, but like also hurting and sad looking at these graphs just because it's like, it's hard to grasp. Yeah, it is. Uh, so yeah, you can check out this paper on our website, paperboyspodcast.com. We're also on social media, Twitter and Instagram at paperboyspod. And we have a Patreon that we would love it if you checked out, patreon.com slash paperboyspod. Uh, that helps support the show, helps keep me and James from tearing our hair out during this extremely frustrating remote recording <laughs> that we've been doing now for like three months. Yes. Yeah, the Patreon is just a really great way for you to uh, get more involved in the show and get more content out of it. And uh, and yeah, and kind of interact with me and James on a more personal level. So Yeah, check it out. Maybe next week we'll do a more emotionally refreshing episode about puppies and kittens and strawberries. But... <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you join us again next week for another exciting edition of Paper Voice. Thanks for listening. <laughs>